welcome to the Kicks EAP podcast, your monthly podcast with important leaders in education from Eastern Europe, Middle East and North Africa, Central Asia, and the Asia Pacific. I'm your host, Ryan Allen, assistant professor at Chapman University here in Southern California, and my own background is in international and comparative education. Let's start the show. Today we have Dr. Kalala Devedichi, senior researcher at the National Research Institute, Papua New Guinea. And we discuss her career and her work at the Institute and the unique challenges that face the country from basic education and literacy to infrastructure issues. We had a couple places with technical issues, but we have edited those out and I don't think you should be able to notice and it should be a, a great, wonderful interview. So let's hop to it. Dr. Defetta Chi, thank you very much for joining us today on the Kix EAP podcast. Thank you. If, if we could, why don't, why don't we get started talking a little bit about your educational background? You received your PhD from the University of Canberra uh, in Australia, um, and, and you're a trained in linguistics. Um, so can you maybe talk a little bit about that experience? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Ryan. Okay. I began my uh, career, well, I, at the, uh, I mean, the, the, the PhD, what at that time, uh, teaching as a lecturer at the University of Papua New Guinea. So I taught there for 13 years in the linguistics department. So I went over to the Australian National University to start off the PhD program to actually write about one of the Austronesian languages in Papua New Guinea. But then I kind of changed my topic to be more practical. And I decided to change the topic into bilingual education using Papua New Guinean languages. That is why I switched my universities also. It was more theoretical at the Australian National University. So I decided to be a bit more practical and decided to transfer my program over to the University of Canberra. That's, that's where I, I stayed the whole time after the first two years doing theoretical linguistics at the Australian University. And then from after the two years of postgrad studies, again in linguistics, I went over to do educational linguistics uh, which is more practically doing the bilingual education program in University of Canberra. So that's where I, when I uh, completed my PhD at the University of Canberra into looking at Papua New, Guinean, uh, Papua New Guinea's bilingual education system, because at that time, there was a change in the education curriculum where the government decided to use all 850 plus different Papua New Guinean indigenous languages in the um, education system at the elementary level. So in elementary prep, elementary one and two, as they called it at that, in that time in that structure, we had to use our mother tongue to start off the children in their first phase of educational years, those years. So once they uh, leave uh, elementary three, two, move on into the primary school at grade, in grade three, then there was this transition period or the bridging a period where they then had to start transit, transitioning into English. So at around that time, I decided to change my topic from theoretical linguistics into bilingual education, because I thought that was more practical and it would benefit a lot of Papua New Guineans. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I know often there's a critique of the academy that some of the things we're talking about theoretically don't quite match up to 
uh, what's happening on the ground. And, and it, it's, it's great that you, you were able to sort of connect more practical skills. Um, I'm actually curious, and one of the things I often ask my interviewees is about their experience of deciding maybe to, to go back or stay in the country that, uh, that, that they studied for their PhD. So what drew, drew you back to uh, Papua New Guinea after your PhD in Australia? Okay, um, this, um, I went for my studies under the Australia Awards uh, Scholarship. And uh, there is a kind of a requirement that once you complete your uh, scholarship, you go back to your country. So I, I had to do that. I had to go by the requirements and I had to come back to the country to offer back to my country what I had gained from my studies. So that was the whole reason why I had to return. And if I wanted to go back and work abroad, I'd do that after I two or three years. But otherwise I never did that. I just continued on to stay back here because I was already doing a lot of things. Yes. Right, right. That's fantastic. So you, you even though you, you know, you maybe had opportunities abroad, you said, I, I want to stay and, and yes. help, you know, the the community. Yeah. And that's fantastic yeah. to hear. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier, and, and you're a, a trained in linguistics. Yeah. Yes. And so I'm really fascinated by the linguistic diversity of uh, Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently, it's the number one uh, most uh, languages mm -hmm. spoken in any country in, in the mm -hmm. world. That's that's fascinating. But it also brings in, I imagine, so many challenges for educators. So can you maybe talk about those challenges and how you overcome mm -hmm. them um, in terms of, of education. Okay, yes. Um, I can say something on that. Um, well, uh, we have about uh, 850 plus different languages and with those languages, they have their own dialects again. So there's a vast uh, immaturity of languages in this country. So um, what uh, the education department did was um, uh, in uh, some kind of a, a reform that uh, uh, took place in the past, there was a decision that, that was made and a policy made in the, in, in the early 2004, the all Papua New Guinea languages to be used in the elementary school, the first few years of a child's uh, education in the country. So, uh, it was uh, approved by the NEC or the parliament. So uh, all it, it became a policy that the Papua New Guinea languages are to be used uh, for early, early education. So um, that was fine. And I mean, it's mother tongue, uh, it's, uh, uh, education was, was okay. Like what is, is the, we have seen around, around the world. And it does work literacy in a child's first language is the best. And me, um, as for myself, studying, um, going through the bilingual education, which I, um, my thesis was on bilingual education, I, I researched so much in that area. And I agree that, yes, uh, literacy in a child's first language is, uh, is good. And then it, uh, in, in, in uh, later years, they transfer the skills into another language like English. And it worked, it worked well in other countries. And, it was uh, <clears throat> implemented in Papua New Guinea. 
And so that was the reason why I did my PhD on bilingual education. Uh, how it did not work is because of the implementation part of it. Mm. <clears throat> a brilliant concept. However, how it was uh, uh, implemented by the practitioners was not uh, you know, quite correct. So what the challenges, one of the challenges I can say now is, I, I, I can tell you is about how to actually transition. Uh, because in the first three years, the languages children had to uh, learn in their mother tongue, whatever the indigenous languages that they are located in. But then when they come into the, to the primary school, the primary school uh, started in grade three. So elementary prep, one elementary one, elementary two was in the elementary school. And then when they move on into the primary school in grade three, then the transition period is in grade three. So what I, I found in my research is that um, when um, teachers, I mean the teachers that are teaching grade three were not always the teachers that spoke the mother tongue of the children. And that, that was the problem. It was a, a teacher, I think it all depended on the, the, the selection committee or the, the recruitment committee for the province recruiting teachers from other provinces or other language backgrounds. So when they were placed into the grade three classroom, it became problematic. Mm. So the language that they used was pidgin, talk pisin. So it, it so happened from uh, what I found was there are not all Papua New Guinean children know how to speak talk pisin, especially when you are talking about rural schools, children in rural areas, are not exposed to the pitching language mm. as they, yes. So that was the problem. So teachers decided to use Tokpisin to teach the transition and it confused a lot of children. So that was a very challenging um, uh, point which I noticed when I did my research in some parts of the country. Right. So, uh, yeah, so that's just one, but there are many other. So, um, and again, funding, uh, there's, there's a lot of things I can talk about, but for now, it's a lecture's focus on how the transitioning of uh, children speaking their language into English. It was right. so problematic, yes. Is that, is that related to, I think what you recall, uh, you, you talked about is the bridge to English approach? Yes, the bridge to English approach. I cannot be, uh, a lot of teachers uh, needed to upskill themselves on how to actually bridge the children into English. Yeah, so it's to do with the teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, not a lot of teachers knew how to, to transition from uh, vernacular indigenous into English. Right, right. Um, if we could, um, you know, keep maybe talking about those sort of issues, you know, mentioned kind of funding. And I think one of the other interesting pieces of, of your work and some of the, the projects that you've been on mm -hmm. is sort of the idea of improving literacy improving rates, literacy, yes. which, mm -hmm. uh, which is obviously an important aspect. But um, on top of that, you sort of connect some of those ideas um, to, to, the, to access of, of libraries and sort of the, the availability of, of resources and libraries. And can you maybe talk about why? Yes, OK. Those, uh -huh. you know, Okay, um, I, can, I, I can tell you that um, the, the education system in the past, which people 
totally different to the current education system that is being practiced now. The, the system that I went through was um, a system uh, that was a time when um, the, uh, the, the colonial uh, era, which was just phasing out. And I was, uh, I was lucky, unfortunate, in a way that we still had uh, teachers from Australia, Canada, and maybe some from the UK. So we, I, I was taught by those teachers and that my generation. Now it is totally different. After the, you know, after independence, after gaining independence in 1975, things started changing. Therefore, we started having all these education reforms. So uh, it was English only before. So now, uh, now that um, the government has realized that vernacular languages didn't really do a good thing to the children, but I cannot say that it it was a bad. Uh, a bad reform. It was good, like I already mentioned. It is to do with the implementing implementing the the concept of uh, bilingual education. So the the government kind of thought that without proper evaluation, there wasn't any nationwide uh, evaluation about you know before uh, uh, throwing out the window. They just the government just said out with vernacular mm -hmm. languages, uh, you know, vernacular education and back with English only. So the, the fact that um, uh, uh, what I was talking about earlier about children being educated in their mother tongue so that they, they can grasp literacy, that, that kind of failed at that time simply because of the, uh, you know, uh, teachers were not so uh, skilled in doing that. So uh, uh, what is happening now is uh, a lot of uh, various, uh, number of studies have been carried out okay well we it is being said on the uh, uh, national level that Papua New Guinea's literacy rate is 63.4 something around somewhere around there but I'm, I must honestly say that that is not quite correct because in, in because that information is taken from the population census survey which is done every 10 years and the, the, the questions on the population survey form it's only, do you know how to read and write? Yes or no, you see? So those are the kind of questions. So it's not reflecting the true, uh, the true nature of uh, being literate in a country like PNG. So, uh, and, and so if we carry out a proper linguistic survey, give a children or people a, a paragraph or something to write, that is where we find that liter literacy level is way below 63%. And a number of studies have been carried out. And um, yeah, so, it is, I am sad to say that our, our country is uh, experiencing a lot of uh, issues with literacy. The bulk of the population, 80% plus of PNC population live in the rural areas. And a lot of people are still yet to be fully literate. Some are literate, most are illiterate. Simply because they do not have access. Papua New Guinea is a country that is full of rugged mountains and terrains and accessibility to these places is uh, very minimal simply because we do not have many uh, roads. So they have to go by boat or by air, but again, it's very expensive when it comes to looking at the cost, transport cost to these rural areas. So with regards back to the question about literacy, uh, that is why a lot of the bulk of the population who live in the rural areas find it very difficult to access education. When it comes to libraries, it is also sad to say that a lot of schools in Papua New Guinea 
are yet to have libraries, a proper library building. There are, of course, reading books and so forth, but can be borrowed maybe in a class, in classroom to classroom kind of situation where they go to their teacher and borrow a class reading that collected by the teacher. But um, in my time, we had library, library buildings where we had proper library services and all that. But unfortunately, with the changing of the curriculum, the structure and the, the education system changing uh, every now and then, the library services in a lot of schools have uh, kind of, um, what will I say, uh, stopped in a way. So a lot of libraries do not have, a lot of, sorry, a lot of schools do not have libraries. So now they are trying to revive that uh, system of having libraries in schools. And a lot of uh, organizations have come in, NGOs, to help support schools and fund books, donate books. So I'm also involved in another, in another organization, the PNG Education Advocacy Network, where our partners, we get together and just last year or so, we have been donating books to schools in rural communities. We can certainly share the link to these organizations and, and some of your other work uh, in show notes. But it's, it's fascinating because I think you, you bring up a really interesting point about these other challenges. So, you know, it's not just the li linguistic challenge, but it's also the physical uh, terrain of, of the country. Uh, and and so, so then we get to sort of a question of like infrastructure and uh, you're talking about sort of roads. And I think it, that naturally leads people to think about like, well, uh, you know, internet and other type of technology, which has become central, I think, especially when uh, a lot of the world has switched to online education during during COVID. And you've written a little bit about that mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about maybe some of those yes, challenges? Yes, the, there's been a lot of challenges since uh, COVID uh, pandemic outbreak, uh, you know, took place last year, beginning last year. So what what happened in the country? Or the education department uh, went ahead and uh, created a number of uh, uh, what will I say options on how to actually continue uh, classes uh, without being disrupted. But I tell you, it is very difficult. Maybe for I, I can honestly say that for class, uh, schools in the rural, sorry, in the urban areas, towns and cities were okay because then, of course. They, they had access to internet connectivity and all that. However, the problem, the most affected areas were schools in very remote and rural areas because of the fact that, I mean, we, we do, they do not have uh, internet connectivity. Mm. So, yes, yeah, so um, it, it, it's kind of, the, the current situation in PNG is kind of in twofold, I must say. Urban schools are better off than those in the rural areas. So, um, so, uh, but, but I, I mustn't really, I, I cannot really say that they are better off because of, there is of course internet in, in, uh, in urban areas and there's been all these programs that have been created um, and provided by the Department of Education or the Ministry of Education. However, there are challenges that have come about which we have noticed. Mm -hmm. That is the high cost of internet. Mm. And, you know, people cannot afford that. Not only that, but if, if, if you are in your home or even some rural areas can still 
they have electricity there also, but the fact is that uh, there, there is no, uh, for further or remote areas, electricity is, is, is a problem. So in order to, to have a, a phone or a computer, you need electricity. So mm -hmm. these are the foundations of you know, everything else. So the basics, I think basic services is what I should use. The basic services are not available so that people who have phones or computers can access them in those areas. If we talk about the rural areas and then in the urban centers, it is to do with the high cost of uh, internet. And not everyone is, has a, a computer or a, a phone. Yeah, because a lot of people in Papua New Guinea also are not that well off. A lot live in what we call the, the squatter settlements. I don't know if you've heard of that word for the settlements, but those who, who migrate from other provinces seeking a better life, you know, the life, bright lights of the city, they end up in places that we call squatter settlements where they, 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 they build up makeshift houses to, yeah, to house the families that uh, migrate from urban centers to the rural areas. Right. So rural areas to the urban centers, the opposite, yes. So yes, yes, so those are the challenges that they're being faced at the moment. It's very difficult during this COVID pandemic. Right, right. And I'm, I'm sure those are, you know, probably ongoing. E even here in the United States, I think students, they might not have a, a place to study in the house, even if they have the technology, mm -hmm. but it sounds like, you know, we, we, we have to take those kinds of difficulties and it's and exacerbated in uh, Papua New Guinea. Yeah. Um, are there some, are there some tactics mm -hmm. or tools that you're, you're tempting to implement or that you have recommended that uh, maybe can overcome some of these or is, or, or a model school or a model program? that uh that has uh, alleviated or potentially can alleviate or help with some of this or? oh this is a good question I, I i haven't heard of or known yet of a model a model uh program or a, a model school or a, some you know our pilot you know uh, a system that has been created to to combat or to uh, to to um to be used in this time of covid to, so that other schools can look at it as a model school that I haven't, I haven't uh, read about that. Or I, I, I haven't come across that yet. But what the, the government, the education department has, is, is doing is like what I've already said. What, what happened was a, a radio broadcast, okay? So radio, the, the radio broadcast mm -hmm. uh, the programs was created. So these are some of the things that have been used or have been created by the Department of Education. So uh, uh, education or lessons uh, through radios. So, but, but then again, with the radio, some not all the provinces have radio stations. So there's radio station there, but then the signals are not uh, very, they, they fluctuate just like the internet connectivity. Yes, so radio programs through radios. Um, there have been uh, TV programs. As, uh, lessons on uh, on TV, and the, and now especially uh, not so much for primary schools, but for high schools, uh, secondary schools, students are now learning online. Right, it's like what's uh, yeah, learning online and using uh, Google Classrooms. What else? Google Classroom and uh, Moodle. Especially, you know, it, it depends on the management of the schools what they want. So, but uh, a lot of students schools are now using that, but. Like I told you already, it's 
the urban centers are the ones that are at a disadvantage compared to the, the rural schools. Right. So, but otherwise the rural schools, uh, I would say would rather just uh, are currently using the, um, the radios. Mm. But at the moment, as I speak, schools have, are now open and children are now back in school. Okay. Yes. That's fantastic. That's good. Yes. Yeah, so, so yes, unless something drastic happens again, then another <laughs> message from the department to close all schools. So we've had a number of lockdowns, one last year and one early this year. The closure of the schools system really affected most students. It's so difficult. I must tell you that it is really difficult when parents are not literate or they are semi-literate. Right. So how can, these are the very realistic uh, you know, situations the country is facing at the moment, when, because of the fact that the population is um, most are illiterate or semi-literate, especially parents, mm -hmm. children cannot be helped in the home during this COVID period. So this is what we are facing at the moment, very big challenges. Um, I know some of the things that you've sort of looked at, uh, you, you sort of, there has been though over the past uh, decade or so increased enrollment in in the schools um, and you've seen with sort of the school fees going away and, and then there's sort of the issue of like hey more more students equals maybe overcrowding or other issues oh, that's another issue i can talk about <laughs> sure yeah yeah <laughs> okay yeah so um my, my my research team and i the education research team here at the national research institute we've been going around the country just uh, doing uh, reviews on the uh the, the, the TFF, tuition fee free policy that, that uh, you know, that was introduced in 20, 2012 mm -hmm. by the, back then, the O'Neill Dion government, but now, you know, the government changed. Right. So when the government, yeah, so during the previous government, then we had the TFF, so to speak, TFF, tuition fee free policy. That is where everything was free, children, I mean, not so free, but children went in without paying school fees, so to speak, mm. because parents still had to pay uniforms and other little things, but uh, the, they did not have to pay a fee at all. So it was known as a free education. So um, that that was fine. So access, the access rates improved. Okay, accessibility was right there. But what I saw, what we have picked up as a big challenge for for the, 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 this access rate, uh, which is good accessibility, is the fact that the the country was not prepared for the increasing number of children in the classrooms. So what we should have done was to expand classrooms, to build more classrooms, perhaps. Or I mean, it, it is a, it, it is a, a sad case scenario when you walk into a classroom and children are sitting, no space in between. They you know they're touching each other on the desk. Right. And there is, um, uh, apart from country, uh, classrooms being overcrowded, some are sitting on the floor, mm. desk, there's a shortage of desks, and not only that, most of all, shortage of textbooks, mm. resources. Right. So children had to, to share one between three or four, and it's so difficult for the, for the teachers to manage. I mean, especially... Uh, it was interesting, I must tell you that on one, a number of my uh, visits to schools, a couple of teachers 
that I went, walked into their classroom, they didn't know the name of the student. This is like a classic example. So the, 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 we would say that the, the, the girl in the, in the yellow blouse or the boy in the blue shirt, mm -hmm. because, because it's a, the, number, the number is so missing, like one, the, the ratio is supposed to be one is to 35 or one is to 40, like previously. But with the increased enrollment because of tuition fee free policy, there is now one up to 60, 70, 80. In towns, in, in urban schools like here in the city, there, are, there is a school that is 100 students to a teacher wow. and or 80 students to a teacher. And this is the biggest challenge that teachers in urban schools are facing right now. Right. So it was good to have this um, free education, but the schools were not prepared to to house this increasing number of children coming into school. Yeah. I think it also brings in the question of uh, sort of gender and ed the education of girls. So maybe more girls yes. going to school and, mm. and some of the, yes. the barriers in society that, um, that we might yes. see in, in that realm. Yes, okay, for, for that, um, it is quite uh, true and I might say that it, it, it's good in a way that a lot of children are now, sorry, girls are now in school because the, the kind of uh, traditional norm around here in Papua New Guinea in some of the Papua New Guinean societies is that um, the boy, the, the priority in our family is the boy. The boy has to go. If you're a girl, then you will be taught about uh, again whether she goes to school. Well, this was, uh, it, it says the way some Papua New Guinea societies operate. So the boy must always be the first to be looked at, to be uh, funded, or like, you know, if they have to pay school fees or pay the uniform or whatever, it's gotta be the boy. But, uh, the, but with the, uh, the free education that was being implemented, a lot more girls came to school. So okay. that's, uh, it, it helped in that area, girls, more girls coming to school than before, yes. That's fantastic. That's great to hear. Um, we're kind of coming to the end of the interview. Uh, so I'm just uh, wondering, uh, what are you working on next? Or do you have a project that you're, that you're kind of looking to um, that we can leave our listeners with? We, we are planning to, uh, to relook at the, 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 the literacy level in the country. So we are trying to replicate uh, a study that was conducted in 2011 by the uh, Australia uh, SBAY, it's Asia Pacific, uh, the, the SBAY um, organization, which I am also part of as one of the executive council members. So uh, I, 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 I have been talking to my team if we could do a, a replica of that, a similar, so that, because like I mentioned earlier on, that we tend to say 63%, 63.4% is the, the, the national, uh, uh, literacy rate for the country, but that's not quite true. So what I'm looking at with my team is we are planning to do uh, a nationwide uh, linguistics, uh, sorry, uh, literacy survey to actually give them the actual uh, a passage to read or write, something like that, so that we know exactly if students do understand uh, a passage. If like, you know, they, they, they read to us, you see. I mean, we come up with the, some, uh, some, some activities to actually uh, try to find out the real 
uh, numbers here, the rates, whether they are actually reading and understanding, comprehending what they read. So that, yeah, so that is one. And the other one is the, the, the effect of, um, because you see there's now been a change. The, the free education uh, was uh, uh, thrown out the window when uh, last year or two years ago when the new government came in. So now the current government is, I think it's, um, I think it's 62% uh, uh, subsidized. So the parents are paying a portion while the, the government a portion. So we're trying to investigate whether that is actually working. So that's another project we are embarking on now too, yes. Do you expect then to accessibility to drop because of that or is that still not, not sure? Uh, well, I am thinking it might drop slightly because you know a lot of parents were for over 10 years, a decade, parents were relying on the government to pay their fees for the children and they paid. Right. So uh, that's why we are trying to investigate to confirm whether it has dropped or whether it's still the same. Yeah. So that's, uh, okay. yes. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, we're, we'll look forward to that work and mm -hmm. all your other work and we'll make sure to share that in our show notes. But uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Devetta, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for talking to you. And this concludes our Kicks EAP podcast, which is released every first Wednesday of the month. Of course, the opinions expressed on the Kicks EAP podcast are solely those of the host and the guest. The Kicks EAP podcast is made possible by Kicks, which stands for Knowledge and Innovation Exchange. Kicks is an initiative of the Global Partnership for Education. Globally, Kicks is administered by the International Development Research Center in Canada. NORAG in Geneva hosts one of the four regional hubs of Kicks. Thanks for listening. Find us on the NORAG or GPE Kicks websites. You can subscribe to the Kicks EAP podcast, newsletter, and webinar series, and also learn about Kicks global or regional projects. Additionally, you can subscribe directly on Spotify or SoundCloud to receive notifications of the new monthly podcast episodes.